But is there that component of psychological distress that is present? And that's what I think we've got to be looking for is how is how is it that you think about your body shape, your size, your weight, and how is that impacting you as a person and how you feel about yourself? Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Uh, with us today, great conversation, I feel like. And it's one that I haven't had on the podcast either in a long time or, or ever, I had never really, you know, thought about, you know, eating disorders and, and other, um, other things we'll, we'll go into, uh, with Dr. Uh, Nira Bakshi, uh, Dr. Bakshi, thank you so much for being with me today. I, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad to be here with you, Corey. Yes. So, you know, before we get into the conversation, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself and what gets you up in the morning? Yeah, sure thing. So I guess to start off, I am a doctor, I'm a board certified psychiatrist, and I've been practicing for quite some time. I have treated folks with eating disorders for over a decade um, and am a certified eating disorder specialist. And what gets me up and going in the morning is how am I going to help folks create a lasting impact for their life? You know, and I feel so honored to be able to help folks do that. And, and my greatest hope is that with anybody that I talk to, that I am imparting some hope and some capacity to see that they can live their lives in the way that they want to. Yeah, hope. And we, well, we need a whole lot of, you know, right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. You know, when, when we first spoke, and, you know, talking about some of your passions, some of the things that you're really passionate about. And it was this conversation around eating disorders and how that is affecting people and looking into it and doing some research and just kind of preparing myself for our conversation today. Mm -hmm. I read a lot about, you know, eating disorders and mental illness, eating disorders and how it's a public health epidemic that we're not talking about. And there was an article that I read about that. And, you know, it talks about not only is it, you know, something that we should be concerned about, you know, as public health professionals, because it's something that is underrepresented or not talked about a lot. Based off of your experience and what you what you focus on, how do you feel about eating disorders being kind of a public health concern, not getting the light that it should? You know, it's a, that's a, that's a big, big question. Yeah. I appreciate you asking it. I think it's, it's a couple of different things all sort of wrapped up into one. And 
when I go back in time and I think about when I first embarked on my journey with saying, okay, I'm going to be treating eating disorders and I'm going to be seeing folks whose primary thing that they're dealing with is their eating disorder. A lot of my colleagues, that's psychiatrists, therapists, everybody was like, Ooh, are you sure about that? And mm-hmm. I think at least within the therapeutic community, there's this idea that eating disorders and people who have eating disorders are incredibly complex and quote unquote difficult. And when I think about it, I think about what is it that that person is going through that got them to a point where using food and nutrition has become a weapon against themselves. And so to me, treating folks with eating disorders is bread and butter medicine. You know, we've got these folks who are dealing with issues that affect them mentally and physically. Isn't that what we do as doctors? Isn't that right. what we do as right? And so to me, it always just was so perplexing that folks view this as being something that's so complicated and that they are unwilling to treat. I think the other part of it, though, is when I go back and think about the training that I had as a medical student and then as a psychiatry resident, which is, you know, residency is what you do after medical school when you go into your specialty. The amount of time that's taken to train people about how you treat eating disorders is so minimal. And to me, that that's the shocking part, because as you mentioned, you know, eating disorders are one of the most common mental illnesses that are out there. Yet, as we prepare future doctors and future therapists, we don't give them the opportunity to really learn about them. And so that's also been something that gets me up in the morning, kind of going back to your first question is, how can I teach other folks about eating disorders and how to properly treat eating disorders? You know, so that's led me into sort of being a lifelong educator. And that's something that I'm really passionate about. So I work, for example, with the University of Washington and their psychiatry residency training program so that I can teach the residents and the fellows who are even further subspecializing about eating disorders and sort of like demystify it a bit. And so those are the things that I think that we've really got to be thinking about. And then we add on top of that, you know, eating disorders already existed. People already were scared of them. And then we had the pandemic and we had times where folks were just by themselves in their own thoughts. And Mm. I was treating folks you know, at a a residential program throughout the entire course of the pandemic. So folks were trusting us flying when it was dangerous to fly or coming in when it was dangerous to be around people. And what I heard time and time and time again was when everything shut down and it was left to my own thoughts, I then realized just the negativity in my own thoughts. And I thought about how much I disliked myself and that led into my eating disorder. You know, so we've got these things that are really just compounding it. And I don't want to say social media is the worst thing ever. It's not (laughs) a powerful tool, but there's so much content out there that's accessible for folks about how do you do your eating disorder successfully? And there's so much content out there about you should dislike your body and you should always be trying to improve it. And that can really affect folks in a negative way if you have that vulnerability to it. Yeah. It sounds like to me, there was already kind of, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There was already fire going on 
the pandemic just added gasoline to that fire. Oh yeah. And social media just threw a grenade into that fire. <laughs> I mean, you got it. You got it. Cause you know, in the days prior to social media, there was content out there about, mm-hmm. you know, there were forums about it, but you had to go look, you know, and then you can type in to any social media, you know, experience pro-anorexia, pro-bulimia, pro-binge eating, and you will get all of this content back. And, you know, I think, I think in the last few years, there's been some recognition and certain, you know, social media websites have said, hey, we're going to put limits on this. We're going to try as best as we can. But I mean, it's like, you've got black mold in the house and you're trying to scrape out every little bit of it. It's going to be pretty impossible to do that. Well, yeah. Well, even, even a lot of the a lot of misinformation, mm-hmm. but also like the the perception. Because if you're just looking at social media and you're looking at the person telling you something wrong, but in your mind they look good, so whatever they're saying must be right. right. And now you're create now you're creating this image, and not not what you you have mental illness because you feel like you're not good enough because you don't look like them, mm-hmm. and they're giving you all the wrong information and they're forming your definition of what health is from an unhealthy foundation. Exactly. And I think you, you're hitting on something so key right there is this idea of what is health. And I think for so long, we've defined it in certain kinds of ways, including weight. And there, there are so many different determinants of health. And I, I tend to be a visual person. And so I'm you know, visualizing this sort of like intersectionality of who you are as a person and what your individual factors are. And we've got to take that into consideration when we're thinking about your personal health, right? And not necessarily what's your BMI, what's your weight, what's your you know measurement. It's really what is your context as a human being? And then how do we think about your personal health? Not who is this inspiration, thinspiration person that you're looking at on whatever social media, because they are a person completely different from yourself. Right. What role does culture play in how people see health or eating disorders? Yeah, I think huge, huge. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I think about sort of the majority of the people who come in for treatment, the majority of the people who are providing treatment tend to be white cisgendered women. And I think that that leads into this perception in our society that they are the people who then have eating disorders because they're the people who talk about it. They're the people who go to treatment, but that's so not true. I mean, you know, eating disorders can affect every single person, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of race, regardless of creed, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of religion, it affects everybody. But when we add in the shame that's already present as part of eating disorders, and then add that layer on top of it of cultural shame or sort of expectation, that adds in so much more. And so I'm a a woman who identifies as South Asian, born and raised in America, though, but my parents immigrated uh, from India. And we don't talk about eating disorders 
in South Asian culture, generally speaking. And so everything I'm saying here, asterisk, right, because I don't represent every single South Asian American person. <laughs> right. However, we don't really talk about it. But food and personal appearance are so baked into how we value ourselves and our family and our culture, right? So it's that constant, you're not eating enough. Oh, you ate too much. You're too skinny. Nope, you're too fat. And it's this constant pressure. But then you have the community who feel like they can comment about what you look like. And that's, you know, the aunties and uncles. They might actually be your auntie. They might actually be your uncle. Or it could be a family friend or whomever. Right. And they'll say, oh, beta, which means like son or daughter. Beta, you you look you look healthy. That That's code word for you gained weight and you need to cut it out. Right? Or, oh, you know, you, you look too healthy, but here, have this extra serving of sweets and you're going to insult me if you don't eat it. Right? So it's like you've got to eat everything on your plate, but maintain a certain look. That's where I struggle is with the, especially, and again, I can't speak for the whole black community, but I can say this, if my mother or someone that is a matriarch in my family and they offer you food, <laughs> yeah. you can't say, you better not say no. Right. You know? Because it's looked at as disrespectful for some reason is looked at. <laughs> as disrespectful. And I, I agree with you. And I think that that goes cross culturally, you know, and, and you're a hundred percent right. Even if I dislike this particular dish, if I refuse it from this certain auntie, Ooh, I'm going to get talked about, you know, <laughs> and not in a positive way. For sure. And also too, you know, when we think about it though, right. Food is something in the South Asian culture. It takes a lot of time to prepare. There's a lot of different steps to it. People put their love into it. And it's typically done by the women, right? You're 100% on that. So pull all of that together. I am then rejecting your love. Right. Food, you know? And so yeah. that then is really what it's about is I am either showing favoritism to this auntie because I'm eating her food and not your food. I'm rejecting you as a person because I'm rejecting your food. Yet, I'm supposed to look like Priyanka Chopra, which I do not. <laughs> you know? I'm supposed to look like these, these you know, Indian film actress stars because that's also so baked into our culture is how do you look, right? And then, I mean, I'm opening up a can of worms, but that's you know, colorism, it's how does your hair look? It's what does your body look like? It's all of those things. Right. You know? Yeah. You said something earlier where when you were talking about um, the education you received and eating disorders wasn't a huge part of that. And what, what, I, what I understand or what I kind of take from that is now, since it wasn't, maybe a lot of providers don't know how to even have that conversation or even know what, what to look for when someone's talking outside of like the typical things you see when you hear about with eating disorders, like, you know, bulimia or anorexia, what, how can people identify, or is there a way of identifying, you know, different eating disorders or someone struggling with an eating disorder? Yeah. Yeah. And so 
there's this manual that we have. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it's got every single psychiatric illness in there. And so eating disorders are in there. And while the manual has its, has its flaws, everything does. Mm-hmm. The thing in there is that every single eating disorder causes psychological distress. So it doesn't matter sort of what you're doing or what the eating disorder is, but is there that component of psychological distress that is present? And that's what I think we've got to be looking for is how is, how is it that you think about your body shape, your size, your weight, and how is that impacting you as a person and how you feel about yourself? And I think that's the important thing. And I think also too, that then goes cross-culturally too, right? Because if we think about other sort of determinants like BMI or, you know, whatever, none of those things are universal, but this, this dis- distress that is happening to the person is universal. And so that's mm. what I think we've really got, really, really got to be thinking about is what is that underlying distress? What is that underlying self-loathing mm. that's occurring for that person? And how do we see that? Right. So, yeah, cause now I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, patients I've seen in the past mm-hmm. that were referred to me for obesity right or whatever the case may be that that word right Mm -hmm. and now i'm wondering you know some of them we've had success some of them there was no success but now i'm curious what was there an underlining eating disorder and with that underlining eating disorder was there some mental issues that they needed to focus on before they can even start to work on some of the things they can we can do to improve their health yeah, hundred percent correct there, Corey. Because you know, I, I always say that eating disorders don't occur in a vacuum. Number one, right? There's always something else that is going on that is leading the person to this space. And you know, <laughs> obesity is kind of like a, a cuss word in the eating disorder treatment community. Because again, how is it that we're defining this? How is it that we're saying that somebody's weight? is what's causing all of these issues, but we're not looking at how did that person arrive to this space? Right. And that's something that, you know, I really am passionate about teaching a lot of primary care physicians about, right? Because there's also all this research that's out there about, you know, somebody who's quote unquote overweight goes into their primary care physician for a cough and they're told that they need to lose weight. They go in because they sprain their ankle and they're told they need to lose weight everything kind of comes back to this idea of if you're in a larger body, you should not be in that larger body. And all of the things that you are dealing with are because of the fact that you're in a larger body. So then when we pull it back to this idea of treating obesity, I am not, you know, disavowing that there are connections to elevated blood pressure or elevated cholesterol or whatnot. But if all we're looking at is a person's weight and their lab numbers, then we're not really, again, looking at the full context of who that person is and what are the determinants of their individual health. What we're looking at is you've got a number that I think is too high and we've got to bring it down. Right. And the the go-to is, okay, let's lose weight and then see what happens. Are there, is there an issue with, under diagnosing 
eating disorders based off of what community someone or culture someone comes from? Is that a is that a concern? Is that something that goes on? Yeah, I would say so. I think it, it's it's interesting because again, so I, I worked in eating disorders specifically for over a decade. And I worked at residential level of care, which is, you know, folks stay there 24-7. I worked where at a level of care where folks come in and out, but seven days a week. And whenever I would see a person of color, I'm like, I want you to be my patient, right? Because they were so, they were so few and far between. But I also wanted them to see, okay, my provider is a person of color. I'm not here sort of having to be on guard at my most vulnerable time with people who don't look like me or who may not understand my experience or who may not take the time to understand my experience. And I'm not saying that all white providers are that way, but there is, I believe, a certain level of comfort when you see somebody who in some sort of a way looks like yourself. There's a certain level of, okay, I can breathe. I can potentially trust this place if this person is here. And there were so few folks of color coming through as patients that it really boggled me because I knew that they were out there, but they weren't coming in. And I thought about, again, going back to South Asian culture, oftentimes we don't want to burden others. We don't want to publicize our pain, our suffering. And at times it can feel like going out and seeking help is publicizing it, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas Mm -hmm. you should be dealing with it within the community, within your family, deal with it internally as much as possible because you don't want to bring that shame upon your family, upon your community or whatnot, because mental illness, eating disorders are viewed as shameful, right? So you've already got shame. Your community tells you, you should have more shame on top of it. And so then there are so many barriers to seeking care. I think, you know, one of the things though, that I'm seeing particularly about this crop of South Asian American teenagers and you know folks in their early 20s is they're sort of fucking that they're saying why why should i feel shameful why should i be constrained to my community just because you tell me that i should be and you know i think part of that is then that acculturation that's happening right they believe in their core south asian values but then there's also the western values that are saying just because you tell me that i should deal with this within the family if that's not actually healing me, I've got to be able to look and, and push outside of that. And I'm thinking back to, you know, certain patients of color that I've seen, you know, there was one young lady who was adopted by two white parents, but she was the mixed black and Hispanic. And she, you know, loved the support that she got from her parents, but they didn't understand. She came into treatment and we were able to talk about all sorts of things and really push the envelope and open her up in terms of her vulnerability to get at what is it that she was upset about. And I think back to a Chinese American patient that I saw who I was blessed to be her psychiatrist and then her therapist and her dietitian were also either Chinese or Taiwanese. You know, so there was eight, we were able to create this sense of understanding for that person that hopefully helped them in their recovery. You know, and so again, yeah. I think, you know, when we think about it, we've really got to like crack things up and, and say, we understand you and we can treat you and we can meet you where you're at. I think on the flip side of that, what we also are lacking is research, you know, because oftentimes 
as a researcher, you're going to look to, you know, how things affect people who look like you. There's a bit of bias. And so a lot of the research is really based in white populations. And so whenever I'm out there and I'm talking to researchers, because I am not that person, but whenever I talk to researchers, I'm saying to them, you've got to look at the brown and black population. You've got to look at it because, again, if we're not thinking about how eating disorders affect them in their community and we're applying, you know, what we know about white patients and treatment of white patients, it's not going to be a match. It's not the same. It's not right. the same. So, again, we're coming back to this idea of individualization as much as we possibly can. And I know, you know, it's not 100% possible all of the time, but how do we look at you in your context? You know? Yeah. And I even remember this. So I'm in the Pacific Northwest. I had a patient who came over from Montana and we're serving her all this like organic quinoa and salmon, you know, all this stuff, you know, Pacific Northwest food. And she's like, where are the meat and potatoes? Right. We weren't treating her as an individual because we weren't thinking about what is it that's going to happen for her in her home environment? And quinoa is not part of it, you know? Well, yeah. And, and, I run into that too. You see that a lot, especially when you're treating somebody to get healthier and what do you give them? You give them the, the, my food pyramid or whatever the case may be with foods that they're not even thinking about. Like they have no, they don't care at all about this little food pyramid because why would somebody who's from a country in Africa have, broccoli or what, whatever whatever is on the food pyramid they don't care it's not what they culturally what they eat right. and my fear is my fear slash question is how do we respect somebody's culture and still make sure that we're not one causing an eating eat, causing an eating eating disorder and <laughs> um getting them on a healthier path if that is their goal yeah I think one of the things that I always used to love as a question is walk me through a typical day of food for you. And that could be restricted. It could be whatever you're purging, you know, whatever it is, but tell me about the foods that you traditionally or typically eat, you know, cause again, I don't want to make the assumption that traditional foods are part of what your day to day is if it's not. And I don't want to make the assumption that it's not part of your day to day. Right. So, you know, if somebody comes in and tells me that their carb source is tortillas, awesome. Let's figure out how we're going to do that. You come in and you tell me your carb source is white rice. Great. How are we going to incorporate that? And there are some dietitians of color who I do follow on social media. So there's a plus there um, who talk about sort of this idea of you don't have to substitute the white flour tortilla or like a carb balance, high protein, brown, whatever tortilla, if that's not what you traditionally eat, you know, so there are all these ideas of we've got to sub out our traditional foods for things that might be perceived as being more healthy, but that's not the case. So I need to take the context of who you are as a person and understand what you eat so that we can best support you when you are in your own home. Yeah, no, that's, that is so true. The last thing I want to do is tell someone, because that's how they feel when they see the health coach, right. they feel like you're going to tell me I can't have 
the tortilla or I can't have whatever it is that is the the main part, they immediately shut down because they think I'm going to tell them what they can't have. Exactly. You're going to tell me that I can't have my samosa, which is fried dough with potatoes and peas in there. You can have your samosa, but right. what are your ultimate goals for your personal health? That's what we've got to look at. Not what do you think society is telling you that your health goals should be? Right. So you've been, you've been focused on eating disorders and this and mental illness for said over a decade. From the time you started to now, what have been some differences, some cha- things that you've seen that have changed for the better? Or like, you know, how how did you help somebody 10 years ago compared to how you help them now? Like, has that changed a lot or little lot. differences? Lot. It's changed a lot. It's changed a lot. And I think any person who's new in their career, and I'm going to say I've been working in mental health for longer than 10 years, but mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll just <laughs> decide. But it's changed a lot. And I think anybody who's new in their career, at least me, I tend to be more introverted. I tend to be more shy. And I would take the position of, I'm going to be really quiet because I don't want to say something that's wrong. Mm. Or I don't want to disclose too much about myself, which I still agree. You know, the point of disclosure should be something that helps the person who you're talking to, not just to unburden yourself. But I like, I wouldn't even say if I was married, I wouldn't say if I had kids, I wouldn't say, you know, where I was from. But now what I really realize is ultimately we've got to connect with people as people. You know, if I'm sitting back here as the cold psychiatrist, then am I really helping you? But if I can show up in a way that connects with you as a human to another human, and then I provide you with understanding empathy, and then options that you get to choose from, that you get to show your autonomy in, that's, that's the, that's the key to it. So I would say, yeah, I've changed dramatically over the course of my career, but I think that comes with my own confidence, but then also my own comfort in showing up as a being in the room. No, that's real. That's real. And you you would hope that people and, and even the profession and how we treat people does change because, you know, we get more data, we get more uh, things. And if it's not changing, you know, then, then maybe something <laughs> something's wrong. But yeah, I appreciate everything that you do. You know, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Uh, for anybody listening that wants to follow you, learn more about what you're doing. Uh, Where can they reach you? Yeah. So social media, I'm on LinkedIn. I've got a professional Instagram as well. And what I really talk about in both of those spaces is how do we view somebody in their context? How do we look at things from a lens of mental health equity? And how do we support folks in their journey to recovery, be it from an eating disorder or what have you, but ultimately, how do we help you be who you want to be? Awesome. Well, Dr. Bakshi, thank you so much again for being on the podcast Uh, and everybody. Thank you for listening. I'll highlight you next time.